Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host of Hash It Out, Dr. Corey Petty. Colin cannot make it today, so it's just going to be me. And today, we have Jahan Schoenbeck, the CEO of Althea. Can you want to do the normal thing and tell us kind of how you got introduced into the space? And we can then start talking about what Althea is and what problem it solves. Um, I, I got into the, the, the crypto space in, I guess, maybe like 2014, um, I was, I was friends with, um, with Jackson Palmer, who still am, uh, who invented Dogecoin. Hmm. Um, and then I was also, you know, I was, I was getting into Litecoin as well. I, I made mean, Litecoin as the first cryptocurrency I bought. Um, but, uh, also during that time, Ethereum was, was starting. And so I, I found Ethereum very interesting because, um, I felt at that time, there had, I've been, I've been following the, the crypto scene for a while and there had been a lot of talk in in the bitcoin community about like you know how exciting it was with bitcoin scripts and stuff like that um but then um, ethereum was actually like a project that was like directly and i thought that was the most interesting part is the the scriptability of ethereum was actually directly um, making that an explicit goal so um I, i i really got into it a lot more you know when ethereum came out um so yeah what's your background where are you from before this uh, yeah, so I, I, um, I'm, I've been a programmer for maybe around eight years. I studied industrial design and dropped out to, uh, to learn how to program in like 2012, um, 2011. Um, and I, during that time, I've mostly been doing, I worked for, for, uh, a startup and I also, uh, did a bunch of like consulting stuff. Um, so full stack development. So that's kind of my background. Then how did you come to the kind and, and of... Also, go ahead. Oh, yeah. So as, as relates to Althea, also, I've, I've been involved in hackerspace for a long time um, in Noisebridge in San Francisco and then also Pseudoroom in, in Oakland. And there was a group at Pseudoroom called Pseudomesh uh, who were working on setting up a mesh network in Oakland. And that's how I got introduced to networking and mesh network and stuff like that. And where I got the idea to try to combine that with cryptocurrency. So what's the, like, what's the, what's the problem um, I think you're trying to solve with Althea. Like, what, where, why, why would you even try to make a solution? Um, what do you like? Where is the issue that currently doesn't seem to be working very well? Um, well, currently, internet access is, is not great. Um, I mean, all over the world, and also even in the United States, um, most people have under 25 megabits per second access, um, and then off, often it's also you know low quality or it's or it's kind of spotty. Um, speed might go down during prime time and stuff. Um, and a lot of that's just due to the fact that it takes a lot of capital and um, a lot of capital and coordination to um, to build out a network that's 
that's delivering internet to, to, to consumers. And um, with, you know, so, so in, as I was learning about mesh networks, uh, with pseudo-mesh, um, the idea there was, and there's also pseudo-mesh is built on the mobile like Fryfunk and, and lots of other uh, sort of mesh network experiments that have, have been going on over the years. The idea is that you, you make it so that everybody who's in an area um, owns their own equipment. And so you, you build a network out of like, you know, all of these, all of these pieces that are, that are coming together instead of it being one, um, one big network that one entity has to um, invest a lot of money in and, 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 and a lot of time to coordinate it all. Um, so with Althea, I'm trying, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to add a, a monetary incentive to, to that kind of concept as well. So if you are uh, in an area that has an Althea network, um, you can host some hardware on your house and then um, that can be providing, uh, it can be spreading the network to your neighbors and then also you'll get paid for, um, for, for running that, for all the, the, the bandwidth they're using and possibly reselling. So the goal, the problem we're trying to solve is, is internet access and, and um, yeah, to put it simply. So it's a mesh network that has kind of, um, you pay with some cryptocurrency instead of like service fees. Is it like, is it per band, is it, yeah. is it per, per usage type of thing or? We're gonna get into more nitty gritty details. Uh, yeah. I'm just trying to get like an overlay of it. Sure, sure. Yeah, so it's per usage, so it's, um, it's basically per, per byte. Um, although we think of it as per gigabyte, it's a lot easier, of course. Um, and the important thing is not necessarily that it's paid with by, like cryptocurrency, but but that it's like this market of um, it's, it's this market of devices buying and selling bandwidth from each other. And so that what that what that will enable is that um, if if you're in an area you and you have it, you're connected to that network. You are going to be incentivized to get your neighbors on as well um, because you can earn more money. And then also in an area where a lot of people already have Althea internet, um, there's incentives for people to figure out like better routes for it to take. So if they can make this connection, um, you know, across town, uh, so the, the, the radio equipment that's, that's used actually has a really long range as long as it's a line of sight. So if you can make a connection to a part of the network where the bandwidth is a lot cheaper, then that's like an arbitrage opportunity. Um, and so that helps, um, that helps ensure that that you know the network as a whole is, is offering the, the lowest prices for the best service. So it's like you think of a, of the way a radio ISP is built is like a central planning thing, mm-hmm. um, like communism, <laughs> although it is obviously run by a for-profit business, but within that it's all centrally planned. Um, with Althea, it's, it's more of a free market system. So uh, many different players can participate in the network. Um, and if, if you can figure out better placement for your equipment, then, then you can earn more money within that market. So what I, how I currently understand mesh networks um, is it's basically a, a, a bunch of devices that are linked together via uh, various means, right? It's just, we'll just assume that there's a good connection between a bunch of a myriad of devices. And then at some point, there's someone who provides the actual internet. And then that gets relayed across anyone who's asking it. And then so the whole goal is to say like, all right, well, by relaying information from the guy who's actually providing the internet, we can give the internet to a bunch of other people who don't have ISP. Is that basically what you're doing? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so the uh, the connection for an Althea network, um, it it will work over. I mean, it will work over any internet connection. So you could definitely have people using kind of like pirate, uh, I guess, pirating their connection and reselling it. Um, but that's not necessarily going to be very stable. Um, mm-hmm. So generally, Althea networks have what's known as backhaul. Um, 
and that's a wholesale source of uh, of bandwidth. And and um, that's also how ISPs operate too. Is they'll they'll pay another ISP for um, for a connection. Um, and uh, so that's that's like a, usually a kind of a bigger um, a, a bigger connection of a gigabyte uh, sorry gigabit or more. Um, and there will be a node in the Althea network known as the gateway, which um, which uh, which which sells that spec. They 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 buy the internet connection with conventional means, you know, with just you know paying paying a, a, a wholesale ISP, and they'll sell that into the Althea network um, by the by the gigabyte. And so that's just any, anyone can do that, and it's because it's somewhat of a marketplace. Whoever has internet basically says, "I have internet." Don't doesn't matter where it came from. I'm selling it on the Althea network for some price. Now you can choose to exactly. enter this somehow. And is this yeah, done so, through? So in, in, Go ahead. In the current networks, uh, yeah, it's best to start with with uh, with a reliable source of you know a reliable source of wholesale bandwidth that's meant to be used by ISPs. Yeah. Um, because that's just going to have a lot of uptime and has a lot of capacity and stuff. But you know, if somebody's in one of those networks and they they don't necessarily, um, you know, maybe maybe they have a, a, a good internet connection, but they can also then sell them, that connection into the network, um, and it's pretty much seamless. So uh, if they turn their you know their device off and that connection goes away, then everyone's traffic will get routed back to the you know the, the backhaul, the wholesale, the, the connection. And is there? I'm assuming there's a token here. How does how does that work? Um, yeah, so basically the, um, the way that people, so we have, I'll just, I'll tell you a little bit about the, the places it's currently deployed. Okay. Um, there's a network with about, I believe like 55 or so uh, households uh, on it in, in rural Oregon. Um, and that was our first, our first network. Um, and that's run by my co-founder, Deborah. Um, and that network, um, those, so, so, yeah, that's about 55 people. There's also a network in um, that's just come online in Abuja, Nigeria, and it's about 10 people on it right now. Um, and then there's uh, a network in uh, Tacoma, Washington, that has another, I think, around 10 people. Um, and in those networks, people are using DAI to, to pay each other in those networks. So um, the consumers, they just learn how to use Coinbase to buy Ether. They send that Ether into one of the Althea routers, and the router actually turns it into DAI. Um, you can also put die directly into there, but usually it's easier to buy either. And um, then all the routers pay each other in die, so everything can be denominated in dollars and stuff. Um, we are right now doing that with the X die uh, sidechain for Ethereum, which is like a you know it's like a, a, a version of Ethereum, I guess, where um, die is the, the native token. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will be as soon as we're able to, we will be switching to a, a, a blockchain of our own based on Cosmos. Um, which will also have DAI as the native token there, um, and then the actual Fiat token is just uh, it's just meant for proof of stake on that that blockchain, that Cosmos chain. Let's talk about that Cosmos chain. Why one? Why switch over from um, using uh, DAI and XDAI on the Ethereum and XDAI network to using your own custom built, and what's the differentiator there? Yeah, so using Ethereum by itself um, is tricky. Uh, because of just the capacity, I mean, it's, it's not too bad, I guess, but it, but it's not necessarily a long-term solution, um, and it tends to be kind of um, it, like the, the the time it takes for stuff to um, 
to to for transactions to, to clear and stuff can be kind of variable. So XSI is a lot faster. Um, and XSI has a two-way, has a bridge with Ethereum, um, like a two-way peg, I guess some people call it. But mm-hmm. um, you, you can send DAI in there from the Ethereum chain and it gets turned into XSI, which is you know, the, the token on there and vice versa. Um, XSI is being run by a company called Proof of uh, POA, or Proof of Authority. Yeah. Um, and it's the the architecture of, of XSI, it's, it's kind of, it is, it is a Proof of Authority chain. Um, so that means that... Um, Versus proof of stake, where we're like, so proof of authority, if you're on the validator list, then you're basically trusted. Um, yeah, there's no, right. there's no working now, involved. They're nobody, just passing along the buck on who gets to, to uh, submit blocks. And it's, you're just, you're basically, you're delegating yeah. trust to the, to the validator set and they don't do any work whatsoever. And there's also no fees associated with the, well, not, not fees, but like they don't get mining rewards and proof of authority. That's their choice. I mean, they have the, they have the fees really, really low on XI right now, yeah. um, which is nice. But, um, yeah, so, so with XSI, there's never been a problem with it, actually. Um, but it also, the proof of authority, it, it doesn't seem like the most long-term um, kind of technology you want. Because the proof of stake like, is, is, is available with, with a Cosmos-based chain. Um, it's, you know, validators aren't 100% trusted by the protocol. They get slashed if they do something wrong. Um, if you're a token holder, you have to delegate to the, the validators you think are not going to get slashed. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're going to lose your tokens, too. Um, and so it's it's just more it's just more a more robust kind of um, and decentralized governance of, of who's actually confirming transactions. That's how does why the, I want to move to that. How does the governance around the blockchain you're going to build work? And what token is used to do that type of thing? Because you're going to have to have your own validator set, or you're going to use the Cosmos network itself. Yeah. So we actually already have a, a blockchain up. It's not officially um, the it's a test net right now, um, mm-hmm. but we have a validator set on there. And so the way the, the governance works is that there's these Althea tokens, there are these proof of stake tokens. They um, basically delegate them to validators. If a validator does something wrong, they get slashed. That means you lose your tokens as well because um, you chose to delegate to them. Uh, but if they don't do anything wrong, they get uh, also inflationary rewards, which is like the reward for for having you know put your tokens online behind somebody uh, who's validating. And uh, as far as like particular governance on like, particular code upgrades or parameter changes and stuff like that. Um, the, uh, there, there, there's votes, uh, which are, um, held using, they're like token votes. So, um, the more tokens you have, the, the more your vote counts. And what's nice in Cosmos based chains is also that the, um, the validators, if you don't vote on a particular issue, the validator you've delegated your tokens to, their vote is counted, like they're, they're basically using your tokens to vote, but you can always override it. So that means yeah. that. It's a little bit of a representative democracy, which which helps with, um, you know, there's been a lot of these like, DAO projects and stuff in the past uh, couple of years that have had extremely low turnout in votes. Um, and with this system, as long as you delegate your token to someone you think is going to validate well and vote well, um, they're able to take a, that active role that, that a given random token holder might not. Yeah, we've talked with, with random, or not random, but we've talked with um, the companies that, Participate in validator sets across like a myriad of different projects in in Cosmos and others. Which basically, so it turns out you have this market of people trying to vie for people to delegate to them, so they can be in the top set and earn rewards, and then and then split those awards with those who delegate with them, and kind of have this nice market of uh, people wanting to do good work to be in the validator set, and they run a business on them, but the margins on them are quite thin. 
And I, I just I imagine what you're doing is similar to what other DPoS chains on Cosmos are doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We're not that, really changing a whole lot about how the how the consensus works. Right? Yeah, does that 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 governance token uh, that doesn't play into payment on the network? Does it? Is it going to be specific towards governance, or can you use it to actually pay for for bandwidth? No, yeah, the, the payment token will be will be die maybe at some point in the future. Stable coins that are pegged to to other currencies as well or whatever. But uh, generally, the the intention is that the payment token is something that the users of the network who are not at all crypto savvy, you know, understand. Uh-huh. You know, not some big deal with some 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 complicated thing you have to understand. So I'm trying to find people with the. Uh, go ahead. I'm just trying to find the like a natural pricing mechanism for the governance token if its use is only through governance, and, but that like the value of the network is going to be priced in other assets like Dai. Well, so there's um, the, as the network runs, it takes uh, transaction fees off of every transaction. So. Ultimately, the pricing of the governance token is related to the number of transactions going through the network because um, the people with the governance tokens and the people validating will get um, will get die as well wow. as the, the validation okay. rewards, which are inflationary. Um, they also get transaction fees, which are denominated in in die or, or other stable coins, and so that's where the cash flow comes from. I see. Which you could kind of gives you a natural pricing mechanism of what how much a specific token is based on weighted stake and the amount of transactions flowing through. The obvious next question is yes. like, how do you do settlement on the network for, for paying for services? Is it, is it a payment channel that streams per byte or is it something that has to like, I guess there's an accounting system there and you settle every month or so. Like, how does that work? Yeah. So the, yeah, the way it works is that every, so every router is, uh, it, it pays its neighbors for bandwidth. Um, so they're really just paying each other autonomously directly. Um, kind of funny you mentioned uh payment channels because i had done when i first started working this project i had i had been really into payment channels and i thought it was definitely needed payment channels to work um and even we even developed we even developed a payment channel system uh, excuse me uh, we even developed a payment channel system and um what we found was that we never put it into practice and we just actually made it so the routers pay each other directly uh, what we found with the payment channels was that, like, I think that there's a lot of potential for payment channels in the future. Um, but if you're looking at, like, so if you're looking at one hot payment channel, so that's where like, me and you are neighbors, um, and we uh, we want to pay each other, like, you have to, you know, you have to put the money, you have to lock the money into the payment channel mm-hmm. for you then to, for me to release it to you, right? Um, and then if I, if I, if, if I'm wrong and you were just temporarily my neighbor or something, and then I have to get it back out. And so what it, what it kind of comes down to is that the, um, it, it's, it, the advantage of payment channels is not as great as one might think, because there's all this accounting that has to happen around it. It has to be, you have to figure out when it's advantageous to have them and when it's not advantageous. Um, and then also inevitably any payment channel transaction is, uh, you know, it, it's more, it's more work than, than a, just a transfer, at least on Ethereum. Um, the cheapest we could possibly get, like the process of, op- uh, you know, opening a channel, putting the money and getting the money back out. The cheapest we could get that would be maybe like five to 10 times the, the price of just spending the money. And so it was just a lot simpler to have them pay each other directly on the blockchain. Um, and that's, you know, how that's, it's been working. Uh, and they also, the routers will actually adjust their payment frequency between one another to, um, to keep the overhead at about five percent. 
Oh, okay. Even so you're, you're, you're just the payment frequency. I was, that's what I was curious because, like, as this thing grows, um, like, say for instance, you, you you get a massive adoption, you get a bunch of people, they're all hitting on chain. Um, that's one reason to move to your own blockchain, so you can accommodate that that amount and the fees yeah. associated with it. But also, like, the payment frequency would bloat a lot of the blockchain just with payments. And so it's it's useful to just have something that scales really well with simple payments, so that they can you can have either a consistent frequency and how often they're settling for, for bandwidth or um, allow it to ramp up really quickly if, if people want to like stream by the minute or something. I mean, I definitely think that payment channels could have a place as an optimization, but they're not like, um, they're not a there yet. Thing. And, um, and yeah, and then that's sort of single hop payment channels, multi hop payment channels like uh, Raiden or Lightning. Um, there's a whole bunch of other issues uh, where you know, it's also, it, then it's kind of questionable how decentralized it is and um, what you, the natural way you would end up having it happen is basically everybody using one hub. Um, and so it just, it was just a lot simpler to, to do it on chain for now. Um, if we have a lot of volume, a lot of growth that happens, then um, it's always possible to shard geographically. That'll work really well for our system because um, the, uh, you know, the networks are, are pretty, pretty local. Um, so yeah, they don't. Have, there's no. You know, there's no dependence of for, one network to another, which allows you to like you could, you could share within. Um, yeah, geographically, that's, that's quite a nice way to be able to kind of idealistically separate the transactions that are happening within a group of community. The one thing that may do is it'll tell you exactly what bandwidth or, or, or who's talking to whom in terms of sending that money. How do you how do you give how do you give privacy in a network like this, or can you? Well, that's, a, that's actually a very good question. Um, the privacy is the same as if there were single hop payment channels, mm -hmm. um, because you know you'd be either opening a channel, or somebody or sending the money. Um, and then if there was a, a hub and spoke payment channel system, Lightning, then the, the hub would would probably know who was sending whose money. Um, but as far as the privacy here, it's, uh, you're you're going to be seen to be paying um, the people who are your neighbors. So. You know, I think that there it definitely is. There are some privacy uh, questions there, but it's also not as much of a privacy issue as if you're just using blockchain for general purpose payments to order stuff online or, or, or whatever, because it's, it's, you know, it's the information you get from it is pretty dry. It's like this person is this other person's neighbor. Um, yeah. So it's probably something if you're trying to spy on somebody. You probably know that already. Yeah, I think there's a myriad of other ways in terms of like the the payments they're getting for routing, even the information inside that. Like, in my my opinion, if I were to look at this this network of people who are providing bandwidth to each other, I'd find the person who's providing the most bandwidth for the entire network, and then put something on there to sniff all the traffic that goes through it. Yeah, um, well, you'd have to. I mean, you'd have to you have to break cryptography to make that happen. So that would be you know once you've done that. You know, who knows what, what kind of privacy things you could you could deal with. I can actually tell you why. Um, the way it's structured is that there's, um, so we talked about the gateway, who is, who is getting that wholesale bandwidth and selling to the network. There's relays who are um, basically buying bandwidth on Alpha and then reselling it as well. So that's if you're on the network and you're reselling to your neighbor. Um, and then there's also a type of node called um, exit nodes. So exit nodes are on the internet. And basically every end user has, a direct VPN connection to an exit node. And so all of the uh, gateways and relays and stuff, they only ever handle encrypted traffic. So um, that that keeps your, you know, that's the privacy um, 
you know, in terms of what, what you're doing on the internet. The exit node can see that, um, but the end user can choose their own exit node too. So and in general, with like, with the internet, there's really no way to have um, privacy, like without, like complete privacy without using something like Tor. Yeah. Um, that's a little bit out of scope of, of the project. So, so you can think of it as like basically a built-in integrated VPN. Because our main concern was we don't want somebody's neighbor seeing what they're doing on the internet. That's, you know, that's, that, that, that would be a problem. But the end user does have to have the level of trust in the exit node as they would in a conventional ISP or as they would in you know, a VPN service. Yeah, let's talk about these devices because I, I worry about the security of some of the software and hardware devices of it being put out by projects. I mean, I've seen some decentralized VPN services where if you know um, basically the identifier of a given VPN, you have access to their entire network because they didn't set it up very properly, right? So instead of providing that person with privacy, it's it's a gaping hole into the network. What kind of like what are the devices people are using? Are you making them yourselves and the software associated with them? And have they gone through any security checks? Um, so the devices are uh, they're, they're routers that we're flashing with um, uh, our, our distribution, which is based on OpenWRT. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, the devices running LCS software are, yeah, they're, they're just like home Wi-Fi routers. We choose ones that are a little bit uh, faster, have faster CPUs to be able to handle the, um, the, the VPN tunnels mm-hmm. quickly. But um, then the, uh, there's the antennas and stuff that are actually carrying the traffic you know, across the network. Um, and those are off-the-shelf wireless ISP equipment. So um, those antennas, they you know they only carry the you know encrypted VPN packets, and they actually also function only as um, basically as bridges. They just bridge one router to another, and all the networking and routing and stuff is done within the LTA routers. As far as whether the you know as far as whether our software or our distribution um, has been audited, it, it hasn't. Um, but we're also, the software we've written doesn't really do much. So the software we've, we've written handles payments um, and it handles routing and stuff, but it doesn't handle actual internet data. That's, that's done through, through WireGuard, um, which is a, a VPN that's in the Linux kernel. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I would say, you know, it's not like, it's not like uh, you know, 100% bulletproof, but I would say it's probably a similar level of privacy as one could expect from, from any ISP. Um, you know, knowing their practices. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Who's your audience? Like, who, who are you? Who are you? Who are you trying to go after uh, from a, from a, like a core audience perspective? Well, so there's a, there's several. I, I guess there's several different audiences. Um, the first audience, of course, is the consumers who are using Althea, um, and those people are. I think there's a distinction between just internet service in general and other types of products, which is that in other types of products, you you have kind of, um, you know, you have a certain demographic you're going for. There's a certain profile of your early adopters that you might be trying to appeal to. Um, and you're going to have these, these fanatical users. Um, with Althea, we do have fanatical users, but by necessity, because it's such a local thing, the, the, the audience is, is the people who are in an area where Althea has already been used. So it's like, Basically, because um, because it's based on like you know where where there's a network, so you have like I mean you could have grandparents um, and just regular people, and most of the people using Althea they they don't really they're not really into crypto, um, they're not really you know they're, they're not early adopters. It's just the best option for them. 
Um, and then the, the second audience that we have, the people that we try to appeal to, to expand the project is, um, is organizers. So basically, um, although this is, you know, the decentralized system and all that, uh, there always needs to be, at least at this, you know, at this, at this point in the game, um, you do need somebody on the ground to provide uh, human touch to be able to help people with using it, to install the equipment, um, and do all kinds of things like that. And those are network organizers. And so those are people who um, want to bring a you know faster, a cheaper source of internet to their community and 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 like the vision um, and think it's uh, also a, a good way to have a little bit of a side business or or try to start a small business basically. Um, and the way they get paid is the routers will pay each other about 10 cents per gigabyte um, for the bandwidth, which we've already talked about a lot today. And then there's also um, a uh, subscription fee, which goes to the network organizer. And so when they give someone a router, um, they, they put their address in as the organizer, and um, that router will automatically pay them uh, usually between 10 and $30 a month um, in, in the U.S. market. And so... In, in appealing to network organizers, that's like probably the audience that we really try to appeal to because they will sell it in their area. Uh, we look for people who are entrepreneurial, um, who have some idea about the ideals behind what we're trying to do, um, but it's more about you know wanting to, to provide good service to their community and, and, and being able to get out there and get things done. How does that, how does that make Althea money? Where, how, how are you, is, are you selling the routers? Is that where... Like the, it's it's a, it's a it's almost like a product play because you you're enlisting a bunch of people to proselytize the service so that they can get cheaper internet, but they pay themselves in a lot of ways, and the service fee seems to go to the people who are doing that. So how do y'all make money? Uh, we're gonna keep a portion of the, the proof of stake token. Okay, and that gets priced in yeah. through basically the amount of bandwidth that's going to be purchased and the transactions that are happening. Yeah, so those receive a percentage of of the of all the of all the money flowing through the network. Okay, that makes that makes more sense. So like you, we get this. I'm trying to see how much money are people do people tend to be making in in the cases you've seen, right? Like this this person that goes out and proselytizes. The Althea network and starts helping people set up routers and set, puts their address in these managers. Um, how much money do they? You said like thirty. Let's call it thirty bucks per router. How much is the end user on average paying for internet? Uh, and how much bandwidth do they typically typically consume? Is that is that information you can gather? Yeah. So typically, people use about two hundred gigabytes um, a month of data, and that varies. Um, but that's that's what uh, that that was established actually in, in a study a few years ago. Um, but that's also what we've seen in the real world too, um, as, as being what people use. So from 200 gigabytes, um, at 10 cents a gigabyte, it's about $20 a month. Um, and then you know, plus another, you know, plus another, let's say 20, um, that brings it to 40, which is a pretty reasonable price to pay for internet access. It's another 23 organizers that I was talking about. Um, so Especially when each, other other ISP alternatives are, are scarce. Typically, in a lot in a lot of places around, uh, even the U.S., but especially the globe, you have one option, and it's usually terrible. Yeah, exactly. So, um, then that can all be adjusted. I mean, it really depends on on what's happening locally. So, the uh, the ten cents a gigabyte is twenty dollars a user per month on average. Um, that's then split between the relays that are relaying the traffic and the gateway. Um, so. 
currently um, the relays that, that are on our networks right now, they will make an average of a little bit under $10 um, per month per user. Um, and then the gateway basically makes the rest of that. Um, so the thing with the gateway is that the lease on the, on the bandwidth, the wholesale bandwidth, um, it's a different thing than retail bandwidth you might get for your home. Yeah. Um, even if they're both advertised as a gigabit, because the wholesale gigabit is literally that if you're not using that portion of the wholesale ISP's uh, network, it's just not even going to be active, right? But the yeah. retail gigabit is being resold to a lot of people. So um, with the wholesale gigabit, it, it, it runs over $1,000 a month. Um, and so uh, the gateway has to, you, you basically have to, to break even, you've got to have about like 80, 80 people in a network. Um, and then the, then the gateway can start to break even. Um, that can be augmented a little bit. In most cases, networks are started by somebody, by an organizer who's also running a gateway um, or is associated with a, the with a person who owns the gateway. And so you can kind of smooth things over in the earlier days. Um, but generally, there is a critical mass to get it started. But the nice thing is that after that, um, the more users get added on, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of free money because uh, a gigabit of, of capacity can, can service over like over 500 um, end users. Yeah, regular users who aren't who aren't kind of power using the internet, and I, I've I've seen a lot of mesh network projects that kind of go stale because that gateway is so expensive, and there's no reason like it's difficult to collect fees slash pay for that thing and provide the service for all the people who are consuming that that ISP bandwidth. Yeah, that was um, so with pseudo mesh. That was that was a big a big part of the challenge, and I haven't been involved in pseudo mesh for. Um, maybe like a year, year and a half, because when I, you know, started working out CF full time, it was kind of a little bit too much mesh all through my free time. With pseudo mesh, <laughs> one of the big issues that we we had there was was that we were trying not to. Now, actually, pseudo mesh, you know what? I think that, that they got like uh, they got a donated gigabit, which is really good. But then I think they had a really hard time getting it over from where it was made available to where it was needed. But um, the uh, yeah the, the issue there with pseudomesh is a lot of the time is, is is that we had the philosophy of oh well we'll just have people um, you know pseudomesh worked a lot like LC I didn't actually based like the LC design on, on on a lot of what we did there but like basically nobody was paying each other so the idea was like you know if everybody is you know if nobody's paying for internet and everybody's had to pay for their equipment like you know internet's basically free which is like sort of the goal right at pseudomesh and um, but the difficulty there was. Uh, we were just thinking that people were going to just sort of pirate their existing retail connections and you'd get people to, you know, pirate their connections and stuff. But the problem is that that doesn't result in a very, um, in a very stable uh, network that has good guarantees around uptime and stuff like that. Um, so that was always kind of a challenge, uh, pitching it as a replacement for existing Internet. So um, having, like, you know, having real wholesale backhaul is pretty important, but it was also, um, also kind of a hurdle. Um, we're actually, though, um, we are in the early stages of, of doing partnerships with um, with some wholesale ISPs, particularly municipal ones. Um, so there's uh, there's another town in Oregon, um, where Sherwood, where uh, that that municipal the municipal network um, is going to do a deal with us, where they are you know it's not really a deal with us, but it's like they're they're going to make their bandwidth available um, on a metered basis. So you don't have to bite off that full like you know, $1,500 at once, if you're an organizer in Sherwood, um, you can just, you know, you can just buy it by the gigabyte and sell it by the gigabyte, make a profit um, on top of, you know, the number of gigabytes you're selling. So we think that 
that doing more more partnerships like that and getting more wholesale ISPs interested in this way of doing things can also lower the barriers a lot to um, helping people build out this type of networking area. Why would ISPs be willing to to change any of their ways to help you facilitate getting users that they're not going to have? I guess in the end, it is going through them, and it's another it's another client that they wouldn't normally get. But like, why don't they go out and do that? Yeah, so the, that's a very good question, and and it's generally not a good idea to be getting bandwidth from someone you're also competing with on the retail front. Um, but there is actually um, there isn't that much overlap. There is some overlap, of course, but there's not that much overlap between retail ISPs and wholesale ISPs. So wholesale ISPs, if they um, you know if they if they think it's a it's a better way to sell their wholesale bandwidth, they'll they'll be on board. Um, and um, we think that it's something you've overlooked is like people starting smaller networks. And I, we think that like by, by, um, by demonstrating that that's, that that's a category of network that's possible. If you just lower the barriers to entry, you think that they'll get on board in the particular case of uh, where we've had the most success though, is with wholesale ISPs, wholesale ISPs, excuse me, who are um, run by a, a government, um, like a local government municipality or, or a state uh, initiative, because those guys, um, you know, they need to, they need to keep running to cover their expenses and stuff, but they're also, they have kind of a dual mandate, not only of making money, but they also want to serve their constituents. Um, and generally a lot of the times, big commercial retail ISPs, they require all kinds of subsidies. Uh, they do get all kinds of subsidies and stuff from the, from the FCC and then also from local governments and stuff. And, and, you know, they, they, they want to, um, they want to be treated really well just because, they're going to build out in an area, um, and so the municipal, you know, municipal wholesale ISPs are are open to to trying something different if it's going to result oh, in their constituents yeah, getting better I can see that. I can see that. It's definitely a reasonable thing to look for municipal ISPs. There's nothing around my area that has that, but I've read a lot about them. Yeah, Where, and that's actually so. You've probably read about retail municipal ISPs, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of ones you don't know about, which are just doing the wholesale um, and they're selling bandwidth to like Comcast, who's like providing terrible service or whatever. Um, but um, you know, that's, that's the only game in town. So um, generally what happens is that when they're building roads or they're building power lines, like actually fiber is like pretty cheap. Um, and so it, it doesn't make sense to build a power line without streaming some fiber optic cable along it. So they'll end up with these kind of long range networks um, that may be connected to a few different data centers because those guys need power too, of course. And so there, boom, they basically got an ISP, you know? Hmm. That's interesting. Where do you see, like, where do you see this going over the next few years? Like, what are you, how are you, how are you trying to build this out and, and make it more robust? Like what's, what's, what's next on your timeline? Um, yeah. So technically um, we've, technically we've, we've got a pretty good, um, We've got a pretty good system that, that works pretty well, um, you know, for what it's supposed to do. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we're pretty excited about is uh, we've just finished, well, it's still in testing, but we finished an Android app, which allows uh, you to buy uh, internet from an Althea, from an Althea, uh, Althea device on your phone. So, um, like, like I, I think, you know, as people probably have gathered from our, our discussion about this so far, we've really been focused on more of like the last mile infrastructure level. Yeah. Um, and um, 
we haven't really been focused as much on you know selling a you know selling a Wi-Fi hotspot to someone who's who's passing by, um, because you know we really we really want to replace existing ISPs and not just sort of resell their stuff. But having this um, having this app will, will make it a lot easier for people who who do have some equipment to make extra money in certain contexts. So in rural Oregon, probably not going to make a big difference because you're not going to be you know driving by someone's house in the woods and, and log onto their hotspot, yeah. but um, in our network in Abuja, it's an extremely dense urban environment there. And so uh, you could have hundreds of people living within range of, of a given Althea node and um, be able to use the app to, 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 to get bandwidth um, from it and, and pay for it with dyes, just, just the same as any other Althea connection. So um, that should help those, uh, those relays uh, and, and consumers in Abuja make more money from their connections. We think it's going to be um, it's going to be pretty cool in, in urban environments. And then other than that, um, we're just, you know, continuing to grow and build out our existing networks and help them, you know, help, help our existing networks build out. And, um, yeah. How's that work with the app? So I imagine um, you have some app that basically says put some money in here. Um, it'll search for appropriate Wi-Fi networks with some maybe naming standardization. And then based on proof of payment, it can give it a Wi-Fi password to connect. Is that like how, how is this how is this operating? Um, I haven't really been working on that. It's mostly with my co-founder Justin. Um, okay. But as far as I understand, the um, the the SSID of the network is the same for all of the um, you know for for all the LPN nodes in an area, uh, or actually anywhere, I guess. And so um, your phone, if you have uh, you know, it, the phones and computers and stuff, they'll, they'll switch. If there's, there's two routers broadcasting the same SSID, they'll switch between them as, as you know, needed, depending mm-hmm. on the strength of the signal. And so we just let the phone do that. Uh, so the phone's going to decide which, which hotspot to be connected to. Uh, that's always not always perfect, um, as I'm sure you've probably experienced if you might be stuck on a weak hotspot or something, in a, I don't know, in a, a, a venue or something. But um, the phone chooses which, which LPN node to be connected to. And then... Um, there's a daemon running in the app there, which um, which makes the transactions to pay it, um, and then based on, and then also every app, so so every app also has its own um, its own address and and privacy and stuff, and so it's um, the the LPNOs are able to to offer or deny service to uh, to the different phones based on that, and so if you're not paying, then um, they they will throttle or close down uh, your tunnel. Yeah, because the way I kind of see this right now is is um, similar to something like you know, uh, airport Wi-Fi, right? It's it's kind of similar, but the app that you're using is is yours, and it's connecting to a specific type of router that's running a specific type of software, so it can communicate. Because I think this this is a it's a potentially really neat idea to have um, small communities of people who run this mesh infrastructure. That provides them with internet, but also blankets the entire community um, with Wi-Fi that anyone can come through having the app get Wi-Fi for whatever they need. So basically, it's community Wi-Fi for cheaper than well, it may, it may in some cases be be hard to beat uh, like 4G or potentially 5G prices. Have y'all thought about what 5G is going to do to a service like this? <laughs> Well, yeah. First of all, I'll say as far as the Althea app goes, um, it's 
you know, I, I think it's going to be something that's going to work really well in certain areas. Um, but it's also building a network, building a mobile network is, is really, really hard and yeah. requires a really staggering amount of, of infrastructure investment. And it's much, much harder. It's many orders of magnitude harder than building a network that goes um, just because of the expectation that they're walking around, your calls aren't going to drop. Yeah. Um, and that requires there to be towers everywhere. Whereas if you have a home or off internet connection, you just want that connection there and you're happy as long as it's good there. So um, that's, that makes it very, very difficult for you know, anyone and, and much less decentralized project to, to kind of come in on the mobile internet space. But we do think that in, um, in, in some specific environments that this app will work really well um, where, where people don't have that many other options. Um, but yeah, as far as 5G goes, um, you know, in time, in, in time, I suppose maybe it could, uh, you know, it could spread everywhere and, and everyone can use for everything, but it's, it's very hard to like start that sort of network from zero. And in fact, when the cell phone companies did it, it was a very different time, of course. And, yeah. and they had a, they had to build a lot less infrastructure and they had a lot lower capacity and stuff, but it'd be very hard to start a new cell phone network now. Um, but as far as 5G goes, um, 5G is sort of uh, hard to, to get a handle on because it is a, I mean, 5G technically is a cell phone protocol um, and it's, you know, it's, it's different physical layer uh, techniques to, to use the spectrum more efficiently and it's also some different routing stuff like that. But it's not, the protocol part of it is not like really that huge of a, of, a, of an improvement. I mean, I think it's, I think it's definitely better than 4G, but it's not like, you know, it's not like a 10x improvement. I think where 5G's gotten a lot of hype is with the millimeter wave um, stuff that they're doing. So um, they're moving into higher frequency, um, yeah, hi higher frequency uh, uh, radios, and that allows them to um, have much higher speeds. And um, that's where you get these things of like, you know, it's going to be 20, you know, 20 terabits per second or whatever, you know, whatever figures that, that somebody achieves in the lab. Um, and uh, another thing that 5G is, though, is also like an investment um, in a lot of, like Verizon in particular, they're, they're actually trying to get into the, um, into the home bandwidth, uh, the, the, you know, the home internet market. Um, yeah, because they, want, they want 5G to be replacing Wi-Fi in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly. So not necessarily replace Wi-Fi, um, although maybe that would happen too. But but what they're focusing on now is actually replacing the um, <clears throat> the ISP connection to your home, um, and that's what that's what we're doing as well. And cell phone companies don't necessarily have a huge advantage there um, because they have to build like the same infrastructure to to get to someone's house as as anyone else does, um, and they they generally don't want to use like the same connection that they would use to connect your cell phone to connect your house because your home internet you expect to be using a lot more data on and have much higher speeds. Um, so generally it's just about more, like it's just about more bigger, as far as ISS, it's about more bigger players getting into like the wireless ISP market, which is what we're, what we're basically into. Um, and I think, you know, it's certainly competition, but it's also not like, you know, it's not like, it's not like a game changer. Um, yeah, it's not, it's, not, it's not a showstopper. It's just something that's may or may not be I mean, something you have to no, put no. up against at some point. Like, I, I don't think, no, the cell phone companies are, are not, 
that well liked either. Um, I think they're not as disliked <laughs> as you know, terrestrial ISPs are. But um, you know, the more the more competition, the better. So so I think it's uh, I think it's not a problem. I think it's good to get more more people uh, more people providing better internet service to to communities. So. Yeah. Right on. Well, uh, where do people go to learn more and uh, get in touch with you guys if they want to? They want to try and uh, start per, uh, participating in these networks. Uh, yes, the best place to go is althea.net. Um, so that's a l p h e a dot net. Awesome. What about any uh, Twitter so they can they can send you some memes or, or hatred? <laughs> uh, yes, it's <laughs> at althea network. So althea network, one word. Awesome. Thanks, Jahan. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.